Good afternoon. That's Andrei Babitsky and Astap Karmody and the good, the bad and the guest. Today we're talking without a guest. We are talking about what we learned about Ukraine, Russia, Europe and the world since the war began. Because supposedly we learned a lot. Yes, it's a pilot episode of our podcast. So today we are just two of us without a guest. And uh, we hope that you will uh, have an impression of who we are and uh, what do we think by the end of this episode. And how naive we were a few months ago. Yeah, and how naive we will be in the future, for sure. Yes, so in the beginning, I should say that pretty much everybody in the world learned something in the last months. And probably the most important thing that everybody learned, and almost everybody seemed to be surprised by the fact, is that Ukraine is still fighting. And Ukraine lost sizable territory, but far less than one could imagine. It's true, and so many people were hoping that uh, Ukraine will give Russia a good beating, but uh, probably nobody thought that uh, Russia would advance uh, so little in uh, so many months. Yes, and the war began with a retreat, because obviously it's time runs so fast nowadays that it's hard to remember, but you know... In the beginning, they wanted to take Kyiv. Okay, so what have we learned? And that we all learned. But there's one thing that I learned about Ukraine, despite the fact that I was and traveled to Ukraine many, many times in my life. And to sum it up, it boils to one phrase. Ukraine exists as not only Ukraine exists whatever Putin thinks about the question, but also Ukraine exists in very practical sense, as a government, as a network, as a people, as a political entity, and as a single political entity. What do you think about that? Well, there was, uh, I cannot say that it was like uh, largely surprising, but there were surely some doubts if uh, Ukraine as a political nation uh, really would last long and if it won't be divided by Putin and uh, by some inside tensions. Well, I'm visiting uh, Ukraine uh, at least uh, once a year. And uh, on one hand, it led the impression of uh, much freer state and much freer societies in Russia. But on the other hand, I had to deal with Ukrainian bureaucracy And it uh, made on me an impression of very, like, extremely corrupt state. Yes. and, and Also, the economy was uh, quite weak. And uh, Ukraine, as many people know now in U- both Ukraine and uh, uh, neighboring countries, Ukraine today by GDP per capita is the poorest country in Europe behind such countries as Albania, Armenia or Moldova. So... All of this together raised some uh, doubts about uh, whether Ukraine will exist in 10 or 20 years, uh, at least in its current borders. But now, after the war has started and uh, lasted several months, I think everybody thinks that Ukraine 
if it would be left alone, if it will manage to repel Russian attacks. It will exist. It's a real state. It's not a failed state, as Putin says. And it's a Ukrainian nation, political nation is here, and it's quite a strong nation. And uh, it's quite united as well. Yes, and last month it looks like some neighbors could envy unity and uh, skills of, of uh, Ukrainian political nation. In some respects, for example, international relations and foreign relations, Ukrainians are just, you know, giving a lesson to all the world. I frankly think their uh, foreign affairs departments should be all war heroes. At, they're pretty much winning the war so far for their country. A few years ago, it was a common place, not only outside of Ukraine, but even inside of Ukraine, to think that the country is so corrupt that give generals a chance they would sell their weapons themselves. And there is, of course, this TV series with Zelensky, which is called Serving the People, a sitcom that propelled him to presidency, which is pretty much built upon the idea that Ukraine is so corrupt that everything is up to sale. And still, it was very optimistic sitcom, like, like an, a, a group of motivated friends could change something. And that's what we can see. A group of motivated people can change a lot in eight years, in eight years that passed since the Maidan events. Everything changed. The army, the political class, the generation of the rulers, the civil society and their ways to support their country and communicate their values. Everything. And which brings me to my next observation. But before that, I'd like your take on that. Well, I would say that uh, this group of people that changed everything counts several million people. Because uh, what I saw there, and as I say, I'm visiting Ukraine at least once a year since, uh, I believe, 2003, that what's uh, the main engine of the changes is Ukrainian civil society. It's not some politicians and it's not some bureaucrats. And it's not even some like cultural elites. It's actually just normal people who do the work, who are creating some uh, volunteer organizations who are uh, today buying military supplies, uh, supplies all around Europe and uh, maybe the world, who are uh, volunteering to go to army and the territorial defense. What I saw in Ukraine in the last year is that the state uh, is and was was I can say is I think it's working right quite well now since the war started. But before that, state didn't look like it was uh, really working. It was really very corrupt and uh, it was in some stasis. But uh, the civil societies, like the people of Ukraine they were working like crazy and they were doing things that state had to do they were replacing it basically what i see in europe just a second is like military supplies that are not arms that are just like i don't know helmets or some first aid kits and uh, stuff like that Uh, in poland czech republic 
Germany, like every country that was uh, more or less close to Ukraine, all the stocks were sold out in the first week of the war. And it was uh, like normal Ukrainian people who were buying it to send it to Ukraine to the people who fight there. It wasn't like some centralized deliveries. It was really impressive. Yes, it was really impressive. And that brings me to my next observation, which is, I already said that Ukraine obviously exists. And in a sense, after these four months, we can see that Russia does not, or at least large parts of what what should be considered Russia. Russian army exists, but is not a global force, one could imagine half a year ago. Russian economy is struggling even after a couple of months of harsh sanctions. Russian civil society and Russian protest is very weak. And actually, we pay attention to it only because, you know, I have proclivities, I have tenderness for Russia. But for an impartial observer, you could say, one could say that protest is next to non-existent in Russia nowadays. And the whole branches of government are seem to be non-existent. Like there is a thing in Russia where a general or a defense minister or some high pro official, high top top ranking official, just disappears from TV. And so in a sense, large parts of Russia seem non-existent at, at, at the time. Yes, uh, I agree. Russia proved to be a failed state. Uh, Putin said that Ukraine is a failed state, but it proved to be that uh, actually Russia is a failed state. And nothing, well, at least it seems from uh, the outside, and it's hard to say what people see from inside because uh, people are afraid to speak their mind. Recently, I don't know, maybe some of you uh, know that several days ago, a guy got seven years uh, prison sentence just because he uh, called the war the war. Not a special operation, but the yes. war. And it, uh, now he goes to a prison for seven years. So people are afraid to speak their mind. Uh, but what we see, what we still can see is that uh, everything is falling apart. The... A military is quite literally fallen apart. Instead of tanks armor, uh, sometimes there is just egg packaging because uh, probably the real armor was stolen uh, by someone on uh, like in in Russia even before it uh, this uh, tanks came to Ukraine. The uh, food chain, fast food chain that replaced McDonald's, that uh, McDonald's left Russia and uh, its restaurants uh, were taken over by a a Russian businessman. And this new food chain in just three weeks started to sell uh, hamburgers uh, where buns have mold on them and where cheese have uh, cockroaches in it. They ran out of fries. Uh, They do not serve uh, any French fries anymore because they ran out of potatoes. So even such a allegedly like seemingly simple thing as a fast food restaurant, they they cannot uh, run it anymore efficiently. Nothing works. Not yes, not only by, by, Yes, and that's an important thing that we already suspected that that Russian government is a bad government in a sense. It, it is a force of evil, but now we have 
kind of a proof that it's a fail government too, and which is a bad, a, a good thing, by the way. Yes, and uh, sorry, uh, not not just government doesn't work properly. Russian capitalism uh, doesn't work properly somehow. So one would think that after two years of more free, less free business, Russian capitalists learned something, but it seems that they really didn't. They... Yes, but uh, mm -hmm. we, it's a long debate whether it is capitalism and Russia. Anyway, four months have passed and the roles are somehow reversed, like in public imagination is in my imagination, that Ukraine is like the most appealing and the most uh, successful, uh, or uh, let me rephrase it. If you look for an example of, you know, of a Eastern Slavic successful country, the example that comes to mind now is Ukraine, which can have, you know, consequences in the future. Surely. Another thing we learned is uh, how power in uh, Russia works. You mentioned to me several days ago uh, this impression that this famous meeting of Putin with his to top officials in uh, late February made on you. Security Council that actually announced the war. Yes, and it was a shock for me. It's one of the shocking moments of this year because before that I couldn't realize to what extent even the closest friends of Putin, and these are his friends, they worked together for decades and, and they were friends in the previous century already. To what extent even his close friends are afraid to say a word to him, to say, to even give a, a short impression of disagreement with him. The four-star generals were trembling in front of him. And uh, FSB director and intelligence director and all the most powerful guys in the country, the, all the guys who actually lead the, the police force or and, and special forces, they were just trembling cowards and some of them were drunk. And for me that means two things, both of them bad probably. One is that there is no way that something happens in the real world and it seriously affects Putin's views. Because even his friends cannot speak truth to him. So there is no possible way how he can know, you know the real events in the real world. But another thing is different, and that is that probably these people whatever their, you know, lack of proficiency and lack of professionality and lack of talent and skill. They were well selected, so they won't stage a coup. So probably until Putin dies, as Stalin did, uh, they're not going to, you know, to make it happen uh, sooner or probably the change of power after Putin will look like it looked in 1953 when, you know, nobody moves until the chieftain dies and after he dies, even before he dies, after he stops talking, you know, it takes a few hours you know, to, to, to reshape the political landscape. 
everyone knows that uh, Stalin's closest circle was uh, like everyone in, Soviet, in the Soviet Union was very afraid of Stalin. Everybody knows that, but uh, what's surprising here is that not just Putin's closest circle is very afraid of Putin, as we saw uh, in this record. It was, they were like visibly shaken, but that Putin is also, uh, is very afraid of them, of, the, of his close circle. It's not just they are afraid of him, he is also afraid of them, because it was obvious that uh, all of them were sitting close to each other, but he was sitting like about 10 meters of them alone, like there was a huge empty space around him. And after that, we saw it when he was talking to Macron uh, and when he was talking to Scholz with a huge table of his. He's afraid of everybody, but uh, the fact that he's afraid of Macron or some other Western leader is somewhat explainable. But it's harder to explain the fact that he's afraid of people, visibly afraid of them, who he knows for like 20 or 30 or maybe 40 years who are his closest allies, he's still, they, they still frighten him. So it seems that he's really, really paranoid. And, and insecure. Yeah. Which partly explains the war, his insecureness. Okay, that's what we know about, you know, Russia and Ukraine, what we didn't know before. Sometimes it's not qualitative, it's quantitative difference, but still important. What we knew about Europe? I would say that what we already knew, but we, well, it was even more obvious now that European Union is a kind of dysfunctional, not 100% dysfunctional, but rather dysfunctional. It was obvious already during the coronavirus crisis, during the start of the pandemic, when European Union was uh, very late to roll our vaccines, even though part of the vaccines were produced in European Union, but somehow European Commission somehow mismanaged their talks uh, with uh, vaccine producers and with member countries. And as a result, the vaccination in the European Union started almost half a year later than in the United Kingdom or the United States. So it was already a big sign of uh, that something isn't functioning properly. But now with the start of the war, we have more signs of it. Uh, for example, European Union is very slow in uh, giving Ukraine financial and military help. I believe that European Union uh, supplied Ukraine with about two times less uh, military supplies than the United States. And uh, recently it became, uh, recently uh, an Italian newspaper published an article according to this, Germany is blocking uh, financial uh, help to Ukraine on some technicalities. Uh, there is a package of uh, 9 billion euros of uh, financial help, but only 1 billion of it was uh, already sent to Ukraine and the rest Germany is blocking on some uh, technical issues. European Union was quite slow in uh, preparing and approving new sanctions. And those sanctions, yeah. uh, some of them at least, were uh, rather toothless. Well, not, not exactly toothless, but uh, they haven't met expectations. 
And the reason of it is probably this uh, consensus mechanism, like uh, agreement of every European country, every one of 27 is required to put sanctions in place or to send some financial help. And some countries uh, may or can can prevent it or at least to uh, can water it down. But that much did you know in advance? Well, one could su- suspect it, but uh, now we can see it. It's one thing to uh, guess that it might happen and another thing to see it's happening. Okay. So... Because for me, yes, for me, it was something I would expect. And even there is a, you know, popular way of, you know, describing Europe as as something inefficient, something that tries to regulate the size of cucumbers and stuff like that. But I had a bigger worry in the beginning of the war, which was dealt with Macron and Scholz, who seemed to not understand, to misunderstand what's happening in front of them. And uh, trying to talk sense to Putin, trying to appease Russia, trying to, you know, do real politics, having thousands of hours of conversations with Kremlin. And uh, one thing that pleasantly surprised me was that with all the bad things, you know, they used to say, uh, they like to say about Europe, but Europe still has ability to learn. Nowadays, Macron and Scholz understood what they're dealing with. And not only they, are, uh, they went to Kyiv, they uh, voiced their support there, they pressed uh, further sanctions and stuff like that. But Macron, for example, leaked his conversations with Putin to TV, which is quite a, you know, politicians rarely do things like this. So if they do this, it means there is no slightest possibility in the eyes of Macron of ever talking sense to Putin. Like communication is closed forever. And he realizes this, I think. Well, uh, yes, that's a good sign uh, that they are starting to understand things. But on the other hand, Merkel said that Putin is she's not in touch with reality uh, already in 2014, and it didn't change much in uh, German policy toward Russia. Germany had eight years to somehow decrease its dependence on Russian gas, and it did nothing at all. It had uh, time, like the same eight years, to support Ukraine, and actually it didn't support it at all until the war started. And again, when we see on the data, there is a Ukraine support tracker by Kiel Institute in Germany. And according to this uh, Ukraine support tracker, Germany uh, sent uh, military, like delivered weapons to Ukraine in about the same amount as Estonia or Latvia, which are tiny countries. Germany is the biggest country in Europe and the strongest country like economically. Uh, but uh, they sent to Ukraine about the same amount of weapons as Estonia and about six times fewer weapons than Poland. Poland actually a leader in this respect. It's uh, sending a huge amount of weapons to Ukraine 
second only to the United States and even more than uh, United Kingdom, which is in the third place. And France is uh, sending even uh, fewer weapons than Germany. France is uh, actually worse than uh, Latvia or Denmark in this respect. So yes, our friends in Germany are learning something, uh, but they are too slow in this learning. They are not learning fast, fast enough. And always a possibility to, for uh, some bad players such as Hungary to block all the efforts, to block all the sanctions. And it's actually a miracle that it didn't happen yet. And it's very impressive that European Union still can reach consensus. And uh, in my view, the ability to reach consensus, to the ability to negotiate and the ability to reach compromise is the main feature that distinguish the West from the other countries. So the West still can compromise between each other. And it's very good, but it's quite fragile. And the speed with which West is accommodating to the current situation, the speed with which it understands that it's actually in war and it has to behave accordingly, it's kind of slow, except for maybe three countries, like three big countries, I mean. United States, United Kingdom, and Poland. Uh, yes, but for Poland, it's, it's, you know, largely historical. If you grow up in Poland, you just understand that Russia is a threat. You don't have to, you know, to study books to know that. You, you have to, to talk to your grandparents, and that's enough. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely true. But on the other hand, Hungarians could understand it too, not as much as Poles, but Russia twice broke the revolt in Hungary first time in the 19th century when Hungarians were crashed the revolt, when Hungarians were revolting against Austria, and the second time in uh, 1956. So Hungarians uh, could remember something as well, but it seems that they don't, at least Orban doesn't. Uh, by the way, do we think as a, as a citizen of the European Union, that there would be repercussions and consequences for Hungary or for the, you know, for the membership and uh, any members of the Union, you know, after the war or the coming years? Well, I certainly hope that some uh, lessons will be learned and uh, that in some uh, areas, including foreign policy, the consensus principle will be replaced with the majority principle. And if Orban still in power, there will be some repercussions against Hungary, because before that, Hungary was protected by Poland. They were both like, as people like to call them, illiberal democracies. And to punish some country, uh, European Union uh, need to make an uh, anonymous decision. Uh, but Poland always said that they wouldn't agree with any sanctions against Hungary. Now uh, Poland is very anti-Russian and pro-Ukrainian and Hungary is the uh, most pro-Russian country in the entire, uh, entire European Union. So Orban, I think, understands that he should uh, thread carefully because otherwise, if he will be 
too pro-Putin, like too obviously pro-Putin, uh, then Poland uh, wouldn't protect him anymore. But what will be, what the configuration of power in the European Union will be after this war is hard to say, because on the one hand, the need for some really big changes, probably the new European treaty was obvious uh, for already some years, even before the war. But it's yet to be seen if uh, European Union is able to reform itself. I, I'm not, uh, I okay. hope so, but I'm not sure about it. Okay. I can tell you about one more country that surprised me in the last months, and that is unexpectedly Kazakhstan. In the beginning of this year, as you probably know, and probably our listeners know too, there was a kind of a coup in Kazakhstan, and uh, the ruler of last 30 years, Nosultan Nazarbayev, was ousted even from informal power, and uh, the current the current head of state looked like a kind of Pinochet who killed a few dozen people to consolidate power, you know, and now is going to build his own autocracy, which probably still can be the fact. But the foreign policy of Kazakhstan is really a surprise. For example, a month ago, the president of Kazakhstan, Kasim Jomart Tokayev, came to St. Petersburg for Petersburg Economic Forum and one has to understand that Kazakhstan has no economic borders with Russia. Kazakhstan is not sanctioning Russia, although it's respecting other sanctions and stuff. But uh, for many, many years, Kazakhstan and Russia just had no border or had very porous border. And he came to St. Petersburg. Uh, so sorry, I uh, just uh, want to specify this here that Kazakhstan has has like common border with Russia and it's very long border, but this border is like almost non-existent. Like people yes, and, and goods are moving, moving freely. Because yes, and there are no tariffs. Just, uh, maybe don't know the geography of the, this region. That's why I'm yep, yep, uh, yep. saying that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and for many, many, many years, Kazakhstan and Belarus were like the main supporters of Russian policy in the world. And in St. Petersburg, sitting on the same stage with Putin, Kasim Jamakh Takayev said that he thinks that Donetsk and Luhansk republics are sham republics and Kazakhstan does not support them. And Kazakhstan respects Ukrainian you know, sovereignty. And that was quite a speech. And listening to it, what I thought about was that probably by this moment, Kazakhstan has security guarantees from China. Without them, it's hard to imagine how he could afford such an affront in the presence of Putin. That Takayev knows that China wouldn't allow Putin to invade. And he probably knows that Russia wouldn't allow China to invade. Not that Russia can dictate China what to do, but still. And I thought that, you know, that is kind of wise foreign policy we are looking at. 
I think right now only two kinds of people can support Putin. Uh, the first kind is the people who are totally dependent on them, uh, such as uh, the president of Armenia, because Armenia is close to Turkey, which is uh, it's like century-long nemesis and for, and it doesn't have any other uh, strong allies except Russia, allies except Russia. And the other type of people who are supporting Putin, people who are just plain crazy, like out of their minds, such as uh, probably Lukashenko is, because it's several last years, it seems that he's uh, out of touch. So he's quite efficient at keeping power, you should admit it. But uh, Takayev doesn't seem to belong to either of these categories, because first, yes, uh, the Kazakhstan is sandwiched be- between Russia and China, and uh, China obviously won't be happy if Russia will decide to just annex it. China probably won't uh, either independent Kazakhstan or, or want the Kazakhstan to, to belong to itself, not to Russia. And he shouldn't very much afraid Russian military intervention and Kazakhstan is also quite strong economically. I think it's about as rich as Russia per capita, it has a huge gas reserves because Takayev doesn't actually depend on uh, Russia and uh, he's obviously not crazy, he's trying to distance himself from Putin as uh, any sane person would. Yes, but still, still it was surprising. It, it yes, looks, um, yes, 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 yes. It, it was a surprise. Okay, and uh, now the last, you know, large force in the region that you know that that takes part in the conflict is obviously Turkey. What we now know about Turkey, what we didn't know before. Well, it's a matter of degree because we knew that Erdogan was unfunterable and he was, uh, wasn't like a real partner for Europe and NATO. Uh, now we know it for sure. At least for me, it was quite surprising that he was brazen enough to try and to stop, uh, not, not, not to stop, but to slow down Sweden and Finland's succession to, to NATO. Yep. I didn't think he would dare it, but he obviously quite daring person. Uh, now it's quite clear. And he's not afraid to be seen as uh, Europe or United States as a problem, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, though he didn't join the sanctions, Turkey's military help to Ukraine is uh, huge, absolutely huge. Uh, It's not quite sure that Ukraine would withstand uh, two or three first week of the war without the Bayraktars which Turkey is supplying. And uh, though he, like, allegedly, Turkey behaves like a neutral country in this conflict, actually, in fact, it's helping Ukraine and it's helping a lot. And and by the way, you can see it, by the way, Azerbaijan is all for Ukraine and Armenia is all against it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you you start wondering, you know... Armenia actually doesn't have a choice, unfortunately. Yes, and I think that at least partly, you know, the sentiments of Azerbaijan and Turkey depends on what Armenians think. Azerbaijan... If Armenians are for Russia, we are against it. 
Азербайджан, for sure. I'm not sure about Turkey. I don't think Turkey uh, sees Armenia as some serious player that it should like care about. Uh, Probably, but just my guess that Turkey doesn't want Russia to uh, become too powerful, uh, which it obviously would become uh, if it managed to annex Ukraine. So probably Turkey just doesn't want uh, Russia to succeed in it and uh, doesn't want to get much stronger country near its borders. Yes, and 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 obviously, if you know, if the Black Sea is closed from Russia or large parts of Black Sea, Turkey and Russia is, you know, losing the war, then Turkey has Black, the Black Sea all to itself, at least economically. Yes. Like the largest presence and population of Turkey is more than population of all the regions of all the countries, you know, around uh, the Black Sea that don't belong to Turkey. Okay, are there any surprises in the world that, you know, that can count as surprises last month? America is very predictable, I think. Very predictable. Well, it depends on your point of view, because uh, for many and for me too, I was impressed by the Biden administration. I didn't think they no, were that, that they, so swift. they were very, they swiftly, yes, they yeah, moved yeah. swiftly, that's right. Uh, America's uh, Biden's America's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan left a very bad impression. Uh, it was really a disaster, a catastrophe. It's been compared to the American withdrawal from Vietnam, but actually I looked into the topic and I wrote an article about it in Russia, in Russian. Actually, uh, American withdrawal from Vietnam was much more organized than mm-hmm. American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Even comparing to Vietnam, Afghanistan was a catastrophe. And probably it stimulated Putin to invade because he didn't think that America is uh, able to do something about it. But so he sir- looked at, at the Afghan catastrophe and uh, yeah. decided that, you know, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like if, in Vietnam, it took uh, several months to get American army out of there, it was pretty organized. And uh, so we saw how was these photos of evacuations from the roof of the embassy. It was actually evacuation of the very last people who were left in this embassy until the last moment, because he had to stay there while uh, other people like American workers, uh, Vietnamese people who were helping Americans with family and army were evacuating. People had to stay in the embassy, so they were evacuated with the helicopter at the last moment. But uh, the Afghanistan, like all the evacuation was the last moment. The entire uh, American uh, military contingent and uh, civil administration evacuated in the last moment. So everyone looked at it, looked at it, and thought that Biden administration can't like can't do anything, can't even normally pick pick up their noses. But uh, actually, they proved to be quite competent. Uh, in the uh, already before the war, not even in the first days of the war, they were doing everything right. Uh, I I'm quite disappointed that they uh, disagreed to close the sky because I don't think it would lead to the nuclear war. 
I think that uh, yeah. Putin, Putin would have to swallow it, but it didn't happen. But still, other than that, American response was uh, like close to perfect. Not not, not perfect, of course, but uh, I wouldn't expect much more even from I don't know Reagan administration. Yes, probably, probably. I I think actually that I tend to, you know, to distrust the expertise, at least what they write in media and and stuff like that. But I have to say that expertise on Russia and Russian intentions last few months were quite good. Like uh, when Macron and Scholz still hesitated, you know, every major newspaper in the world already knew that, you know, Putin is not the guy to to try to talk sense to, that, you know, Russia would invade whatever it can invade, that, you know, war crimes is not a possibility, but a certainty. The people who learned Russian history and language in the, in the Cold War, like Stephen Kotkin and Anne Applebaum and, I don't know, Timothy Snyder, you know, they just learned not only the language, they learned the, the cultural, the historical capital of Eastern Europe. They just know how things work here. You know, Russia is invading. Unless it loses, it's it going to invade. And that it turns out that in a situation like this, you would fear that, you know, experts would be, you know, some real politic. Uh, dummies like Kissinger and stuff, but actually Kissinger everybody knew what's. No, he still is, but nobody's listening to him. Hopefully, yeah. yes, he's ninety nine and and even not in the in prison. <laughs> Unfortunately, still, still nobody's listening to Kissinger, and and all the newspapers left and right are pretty much united in how they see the situation, and they see it. Uh, realistically, in in the good sense of the word, of the word, it's quite impressive. Yes, uh, but again, there is a but. Uh, but what was uh, really impressive and not in a good sense that most of the international relation experts were wrong because before the war, like right before the war, like a week before the war, they were still like ninety percent of them. Uh, some prominent blogger, I do not remember who was it, but uh, some prominent blogger collected their predictions uh, in the mid-February and almost everyone said there will be no war, Putin is just bluffing, there will be no attack and so on and so on. Just uh, yes. like By the single, time when even it, me it's, and, yeah. it's especially surprising because they didn't believe uh, their own uh, intelligence, intelligence sources, yeah, yeah because uh, British and American intelligence said that there will be the war, I think, uh, since December probably, but the expert, like 90% of the expert, still refused to see it. Yeah, so so it's, a, uh, it's an open question if we can uh, trust experts now, if their expertise no. really improved. Uh, no, I think they improved and uh, <coughs> still, because, you know, the, they, they, it's a huge they thing. They caught up with reality, that's, that's true, but uh, can they see yes, they uh, in perspective? Up it's, it's an open question. Okay, but we are <laughs> catching up with reality too. And I, I remember at the time, like four months ago, although it's difficult to even remember four months ago now because time goes so fast, 
Yes. That even Zelensky didn't believe the full full scale aggression will happen. He was kind of ready, but he, you know, he he publicly denied it, and he didn't, uh, you know, and many his important uh, wartime decisions, you know, took a week or two weeks after the war began because he didn't believe actually, you know, two two hundred thousand Russian soldiers will invade, you know, on the in, by the end of February. Which reminds me, Zelensky uh, was a big, uh, big good surprise, because uh, I think uh, almost no one would expect him to be such a strong leader. Many people, including probably even Biden, thought that he will just run away in the first days of the war, but he didn't, and he's he proved to be like a very, very good uh, statesman. And also what I'm seeing right now is after the elections of uh, 2019, big part of Ukrainian society that uh, voted for Poroshenko hated Zelensky. And they hated yes, them, they hated true. them uh, right until the war. This hated never like, uh, never decreased. They hated yeah. them in 2000, uh, in the end of 2021, about as much as in 2019. Ukrainian society was very divided uh, about Zelensky. But after the war started, I see how people who hated Zelensky half a year ago now are supporting him. And even, yes, Pro- even, even Poroshenko is supporting Zelensky. Yes, They... and I actually... Well, I'm sorry, I just strengthened your point mm-hmm. because I, I know people from Ukraine who are ashamed that they didn't support Zelensky from the start. Like, they say, how it is possible that we didn't see it from the very beginning? <laughs> yes. But, you know, history kissed the guy and he, you know, he said, okay, let, yeah. let's go history. Yes. Yep. I uh, wanted to discuss uh, one more thing. It's Asia, and uh, what seems uh, important to me right now is that uh, we know we, we now see in the West consolidating, because Russia is not the only uh, threat to the free world. China is also a big potential threat, and obviously yes, and uh, before that war. Such countries that are traditionally considered to be democratic, such as South Korea or Taiwan, uh, never joined uh, anti-Russian sanctions. But now they do. Now they join the sanctions. Now they are supplying uh, Ukraine, uh, sending military supplies to Ukraine. And uh, Singapore also joined the sanctions. And I think uh, what we are seeing right now is the free world, the West, as we uh, used to call it, so partly it is East, being consolidated in its currently final form. Uh, it's uh, It's getting closer together. European Union, traditionally it was European Union, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. But now countries like South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore are finally joining it, not just like economically, but politically too. And probably we would see some uh, Latin American countries joining in as well in the next months. 
I'm not sure about it, but probably some countries like Chile will join. And it probably will be the final uh, shape of this free world for the next 20 or 30 years. Yes, and, and you think the next you know, battle, battle is the battle for Taiwan? I'm not sure about it, but uh, I think it's the uh, most possible. But not, not, maybe, not maybe for Taiwan uh, from the very start, because uh, maybe the conflict with China may start elsewhere. For example, uh, United States conflicts with uh, Japan started in Pearl Harbor, and uh, there is a fact that not many people know about, at least in Europe, that uh, uh, American fl- uh, fleet was in Pearl Harbor exactly because uh, Americans thought that Pearl Harbor is the place where Japanese won't attack. It was transferred to Pearl Harbor from other places because uh, the American leadership thought that Japan, uh, Japan wouldn't attack Pearl Harbor. So everything now think, everyone now thinks that if uh, the big conflict with China starts, it will start with Taiwan, but uh, probably it will start somewhere else where nobody expects it. But Okinawa, yep. Okinawa or Guam or something else. Oh, oh, is Russian for, oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, okay, that didn't shock us at all. We expected it four months ago. We still expecting it now. We are going to keep expecting it. But at least some things, yes, we, we'd like to think as our, of ourselves as, you know, such guys who see evidence and change their views. <laughs> so at least we are trying here's how our, yes that's how our views change are changing hopefully have been changed yes uh, this year and what we think about what the war uh, taught us except you know the uh, stubborn resilience of Ukrainian people which is by the way the stuff of legends you know yes stubborn stubborn resilience of ukrainian people is you know the the thing everybody knows about if he reads russian or ukrainian yes so but we learned quite a few things and uh we have quite a few things to discuss in other you know conversations within this podcast with guests or without them and hope the world won't change too much Yes, and we hope that in the next episodes uh, we will listen to experts from uh, different countries who would share with uh, us and with you their views on what's going on in Europe, Ukraine, Turkey and other countries. And on particular spheres of this conflict, like arms and ethics and immigration and stuff. Everything important. Everything because important. we have many questions actually many many questions and and our ability to blah 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 is not always enough yeah much more uh, questions and answers so, mm-hmm. so you we i hope we meet you again that's the good the bad and the guest without a guest with andrei babitsky and astap karmody glory to dideba ukraina as they say in georgia where i usually live nowadays uh see you bye bye Bye.